You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's the Undercard. The Undercard brings you the best in hand combat sports. Featuring major interviews, current events, and the hottest ring girls from around the nation. The Undercard is sponsored by Falling Down Beer Company, Podcast Detroit Studios, and is produced by Rochelle Whitten. And now, here are your hosts, Brad, Cody, and Jimmy. Hey, it is episode 284. We are officially at the end of August, so in Michigan it's the unwritten rule that come Labor Day, summer's officially over, even though on the calendar it will give you until late September. But we're, we're celebrating our last week with what I consider a pretty out-of-the-park show, Jimmy. You like that? Out-of-the-park show. Um, but we have some wah, amazing wah, guests wah. lined up. Uh, first off, uh, at about 15 minutes, we're going to have former uh, Major League Baseball player and former Detroit Tiger, Andy Dirks. Uh, he's going to be joining us. And in studio, we have first off friend, but not only friend, a Detroit legend, a Detroit ambassador, Emily Gale, who, um, if you've ever heard the phrase, say any, uh, sorry, say something nice about Detroit. No. No, I messed it up. I butchered yeah, it. Yeah, you did. Say you nice things about Detroit. Yeah, Lord. Sometimes I think too quick, and uh, uh, but say nice things about Detroit. Uh, Emily coined the phrase. Uh, we'll have her recap the story, even though she's told it a few times on our air. But this time around, uh, last time we focused really on like Hearns and Emmanuel and her being part of a great Detroit boxing scene. But I, I saw some pictures of her races and her um, were they five Ks. Yeah, 10K. Um, 10K. They look like the Boston uh, Marathon. There were so many people running those. And so I want to talk more about everything else other than boxing with you. And um, you you have a unique perspective of Detroit. And she also has a Shinola watch that was named after her. If that's not the greatest (laughs) honor uh, that can be bestowed upon somebody is when something's named after you, whether it be a street, a watch, anything, uh, truly a great honor and couldn't have happened to anyone better. But, um, as always, Jimmy's going to start us off with a sponsor that keeps, uh, everything rolling for us here. Uh, okay. Give me one second. I just got to move some stuff around here. We also we have go. ring girl Mia, who is one of the nicest ring girls we work with in studio with us. <laughs> she, oh, she's you. got a great sense of humor and, uh. <laughs> Always fun. And then Rochelle, who is also a good friend of Emily's and uh, has been running the board with us since we booted Ricky Rock so a long time ago. And <laughs> Kicked him out. To All right. Work. Here we go. We have a new sponsor here at Podcast Detroit Studios. It is the audiobook giant Audible. By being a fan of this show and our network, we are offering you this limited time offer. You can start a 30-day trial right now and get your first audiobook for free by going to audible.com slash Detroit, or you can text Detroit to 500-500. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. You can download Audible apps for your iPhone, iPad, Android, 
and Windows phones for listening on the go. Audible has countless books on boxing and MMA. One such book, The Boxing Kings, tells a story of the heavyweight title in the days when it was a defining institution in the United States. Author Paul Betson places special emphasis on those champions who held a central place in American culture beyond just in the boxing ring, including John L. Sullivan, who made the title a commercial property, Jack Johnson, who in 1908 became the first black man to claim the title, Joe Lewis, whose contributions to racial tolerance and social progress transcended even his greatness in the ring, Rocky Marciano, who became an embodiment of the American dream, Muhammad Ali, who took on the U.S. government and revolutionized professional sports with his showmanship, and Mike Tyson, a hard-punching student of boxing history who exemplified the modern celebrity. If you want to listen to this or any of the other countless books, you can find an Audible. Remember, you can start a 30-day trial to and get your first audiobook free by going to audible.com slash Detroit or just text Detroit to 500-500. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. Sign up today. Uh, so uh, thank you, sponsors, for keeping the show rolling. We want to thank Podcast Detroit for obviously giving us the best podcast studio in the world. Uh, we're broadcasting live from Midtown Detroit um, in a lot of excitement around here. Taylor Swift's playing a couple blocks away. But not only that, you were within all the stadiums. And uh, it was actually kind of cool. Somebody actually uh, recognized me. Was I going down the stairs or when I came in and, and, and wanted to talk for a little bit? And that was actually fun. So it's neat being around actual people and having this kind of studio environment. So we thank Podcast Detroit for that. Uh, but if you'll notice what I'm wearing, Jimmy, um, it's 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, the World Series MVP in 1984 was Alan Trammell. And uh, it's not like we planned this out. You can't start six years ago planning out, okay, well, they'll retire his number and we're going to hit 84, how we celebrate 1984. But this past Sunday, Alan Trammell's number was retired. And... I felt it was kind of important midweek. I, I, you get so busy that you, you can't plan ahead in this industry, especially the fight industry. I don't know what I'm going to be doing uh, every weekend. So, But when I found out that Alan Trammell was number was going to be retired, I decided that I was going to take my son to it. And there's a couple reasons why. Um, it's a rare thing to have a number retired. You, you see it done maybe now because of ESPN more nationally but to have a number retired by an organization is a is a special thing and the one thing I could tell my son because he he doesn't know who Alan Trammell was and that's almost a compliment to Alan Trammell because he he was so good at what he did and he was such a quiet leader that you know he didn't make news or or rock boats or anything like that so you know he kind of gets passed up uh, when, when people talk about some of the greats to ever play the game. But I did tell my son that, realize that when I started kindergarten, Alan Trammell was the shortstop. And when I graduated in 1995, Alan Trammell was still the shortstop for the Detroit Tigers. And yeah. if you think about that, 20 year career yeah. with one organization, doing it the right way, there was nothing embarrassing off field, nothing like that. Very humble guy. Um, in 1984, I wouldn't say there was as many superstars as typical World Series teams, but Sparky Anderson was able to get the most out of the players he got, and it was a magical year, and Alan Trammell had a mag- magical season, and it was just neat to see a guy that deserved it, long deserved it, mm-hmm. uh, a guy who was thrown into a manager position in which you couldn't win. I always hate, actually... 
And I, I, this is actually why I was glad Steve Eiserman went to Tampa Bay. I just think it's very difficult to stay in an organization and be a GM or a manager because people expect immediate results. And when Alan Trammell came at, as a manager and the team did not have a lot of talent and was eventually let go for Jim Leland, um, that's tough. I mean, you're, you're letting go somebody that has giving, given a lot to the franchise. I, I never think that's a winning situation. No, like you said, because there's too many expectations. Too They're quick. Like, oh, right, too quick. They're like, oh, well, we're putting a player into the coaching spot who won a championship. So obviously within two years, they're going to win a championship. That's not how it works. And like even if, even if you're a great coach, if you don't have the talent, no good amount of. Co- I mean, you as a as a great coach, you can make a bad team good, and you can make a good team better. But you can't take a bad team and make them champions. And I thought that was the best compliment. And Rochelle was there also. Is that Dan Dickerson, who did the presentation on the field, said the nicest thing you could say about Alan Trammell is, you know, they 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 held the record for the the most losses in a season. Think about that. It was like 116. <laughs> And he said that Alan yeah. Trammell every day, yeah. because you got to do the prep interviews for radio, yeah. Yeah. was always optimistic, was yeah. always not down. And, and a lot, baseball seasons are long. And that's a, a great compliment to him that he was able to find the positives out of a long season. Mm-hmm. And that's something we'll talk to um, Andy here in a second, is that when things aren't going right in baseball, you still got 162 games to play. And <laughs> it really does become the dog days of summer yeah. in which you're just kind of riding out a season. Yeah. And um, so I thought that was great. The other thing I thought that was really neat about the Alan Trammell tribute is that that team was different. Uh, and Which the fact team? the 1914. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, he will always be known with Lou Whitaker. Whether Lou Whitaker yeah. gets into the Hall of Fame is tough because it, it's such a stat organization. I, I think he may get in. But after that, no one else gets in. Gibby doesn't have it, uh, the stats, and Lance Parrish doesn't have the stats. Uh, Sparky Anderson, of course, with Cincinnati and Detroit is in. I think Gibby gets in, but not because of the 84 Tigers. I don't even know if he's on the ballot anymore because I, I, of the 88 Dodgers. I, I was going to say because of that, that home, yeah, that, that hit. Yeah, and the, the fist <laughs> the pump. pump. Right. That became, that became iconic. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody does that. That became an a, a American sports iconic. Signature move, and he hit off Dennis Eckersley, who was not unhittable that year, right? And, and basically, that changed the series for the Dodgers. Yeah, exactly. my favorite moment in sports is Gibby coming out of there, yeah. limping around, going yeah. around the. Mm. Yep, yeah, that exactly. awesome? He was my favorite player in Detroit. Yeah, right. so it was great. to Oh, see everybody him. loved yeah. Kurt Gibson. Yeah, he had so so such heart. And, uh, you know, that, that's what I think of when I think of Gibby and Hart. And then Lou Whitaker and, uh, Alan Trammell, I think it's fair to say the greatest double team. Yeah. Uh, or not double team, but, uh, a double play combination, <laughs> yeah. uh, ever. Well, double team like we wrestling. Need, we need, knows. we need a, a bell. That's a tag team. Tag right? team. We, need a, we right. need a bell. And nice that Alan Trammell, isn't he still involved with the Tigers? As he does. A, as he the goes, assistant yeah. to the general manager. Yeah. And, I mean, so he's still involved in the Tiger organization. Right. And it was wonderful watching he and Lou. Make those those double those plays in shortstop <laughs> and second. I, I used to love watching the two of them. Well, one of the things that they pointed out was that he'd stayed with the Tigers his entire career, the, all the twenty years. Difficult. And that's that's unheard of anymore. Yep, and that's yeah. a, a, same with Steve Eiserman. Mm-hmm. Uh, very similar in the fact of the way they led. I don't think Alan Trammell ever uh, 
was a vocal guy or, or a throw chairs kind of guy. And Steve Eiserman was never that kind of guy. You just, you were the first guy there and you were the last guy to leave. And the youngsters picked up on that. And that's what made those two guys, uh, good, good leaders. And I don't even know if people know this and they may not be friends anymore. Maybe that's why it wasn't brought up. But when Alan Trammell, um, was still playing and Steve Eiserman was here. They were really good friends. Actually, they went to St. Andrews and golfed in, uh, Scotland. I remember one, uh, off season. And, uh, you know, so it wouldn't surprise me that those two guys hit it off, you know, Alan Trammell and Steve Eiserman be same demeanor, same kind of probably win mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also got to remember Alan Trammell played during the time that Cal Ripken, who got all the shortstop credit, and um, so he like Steve Eiserman. Steve Eiserman was always behind Mario Lemieux and Wayne Gretzky. Mm-hmm. If he plays any other time, he's the greatest player at that time. But because Steve Eiserman played when Mario Lemieux and Wayne Gretzky played, you, you're, right. you're and third that's why down. Wayne Gretzky got on the NHL 19. And Dude, Wayne, Wayne was special. Which, I, I'm not even going to deny that Wayne was special. I agree, but I feel, I feel like because it's 19, that it right. should be Eiserman. Right. But at the same time, Wayne Gretzky realize how much a leader Steve Eiserman was. And when Wayne Gretzky was picking the Canadian teams, uh, there was no doubt that Steve Steve Eiserman would always be a part of it and at minimum be the alternate captain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and so, but Wayne Wayne and Mario Lemieux were special. Uh, The the old adage, and I've said this a million times, if Sergei Fedorov had the heart that Steve Eiserman had, Sergei Fedorov's the greatest player to ever play the game. Yeah, it's just he didn't have did the heart, have right? That. Exactly, and I'm not. He did I'm not, not saying have that same he didn't. demeanor. Period. Right. Yeah. You know, he was a totally different kind of. guy. He was very Hollywood. Always looking, yes. and uh, the Anaheim Ducks thing was never. Re- I mean, that's why his number probably isn't in the rafters. Is the Illich family probably still does not like? No, that's exactly uh, that. Right. The Carolina Hurricane debacle, mm-hmm. where they had to sign him for all that money. But I mean, Nike wasn't even a part of hockey. And they were sponsoring Sergei Fedorov. He had the gold locks. He's dating Anna Kornikova. Well, and you know that's why. And, and No, no. He had the long hair. He, he had looks, Sergei Fedorov. Uh, and he was dating Anna Kornikova, which at that time was the number one popular female in Maxim mm-hmm. magazine and all those magazines. He was he was Hollywood. And Iserman was like work at it. You know, I mean, I, Iserman's leg was blown out when my dad was alive. So like 19... 19- 90, 91 when he slid into the post. And since then, I mean, every year for him to get ready with that leg was unbelievable. But we're going to be joined right now. Uh, we're going to call Andy Dirks, uh, of course, a Detroit Tiger, but he also uh, did have a stint with the Toronto Blue Jays. And uh, I'm very excited to talk to Andy. Hi, this is Andy. Hey Andy, this is Brad. You're live on the air with the undercard. Uh, we have uh, Emily awesome. T. Emily T. Gale in here, which uh, I don't know if you're too familiar with. Uh, say nice things about Detroit, but she's actually the lady that coined the phrase uh, back in the day, and it still is a popular phrase in the Detroit area and getting some ground. And we're joined by Jimmy, my co-host, uh, Ring Girl Mia, and then uh, producer Rochelle. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, thanks for being on. It sounds like you got a good crew. Uh, yeah, you know, I wouldn't trade them for anything. So uh, let's let's start off and talk a little bit about your career, and then we'll get into what you're into with mental coaching and everything. Um, but first off, you were a Detroit Tiger, um, which makes you already an Emily uh, T. Gale probably favorite because, uh, you know, anybody that was a Detroit Tiger at any period of time, 
uh, Tiger fans do embrace. But not only that, um, you know, an injury plagued uh, career, but a very good outfielder. Uh, good hitting. I, I think he finished with a 276 uh, batting average, which is very respectable. And to me, because we cover pro boxing in MMA, anyone can turn pro boxer. Anyone can turn pro MMA. You just got to go to the Capitol and uh, fill out your test. To become a pro baseball player, to me, is the hardest thing to do athletic-wise. And not only that, to hit a baseball is the hardest thing an athlete can do. Um some comments on that. Do you, do you first off agree with that? Is is being a baseball player the toughest thing to do? Uh, I think baseball does provide more opportunity to uh, people just based on the physicality aspect. You don't have to be six foot five uh, to play baseball, nor do you have to be in the NBA. But statistics would show that most NBA players are tall, uh, just based on point guards being six two, six three, six four. Uh, also, there's less players in basketball per roster. In baseball, we have more players. You have guys who are a little more spe- specialized in skill set, uh, such as pitchers versus position players. And most pitchers consider themselves athletes, and that's always a, a subject of debate in the clubhouse, which is fun, uh, saying, you know, you're not really an athlete. You just throw a baseball well. Uh, but overall, it is it, any any respectable person i think can see that if you hit a level of of the top of any game of any business of anything in life the very elite few that that actually get to do it it is tough it's very challenging and and there has to be uh certain things that line up such as no injuries things of that nature and there has to be some determination and dedication on the part of the athlete uh so i would say respectively that any that's ever played in any of the big three or any professional sports olympians uh wnba these people who have excelled at a very high level it's extraordinary and uh i i feel very lucky and blessed to be a part of a fairly elite group you know so it's it is it's an honor and it's something that's that's cool and took a lot of work to get to yeah, and in talking about other sports, uh, the farm systems, rightfully so, because there's so much depth in baseball. I mean, you got uh, rookie A, you got uh, single A advance, you got single A, uh, you know, the Flying Tigers. I mean, just in your case, the Whitecaps. Then you, then if you can do well, you make it to double A. And then if you get promoted, mm-hmm. you got to get to triple A. And then you hope to God you were drafted by a team that doesn't have a lot of people in your, your depth category because you could be a player that's major league baseball ready, but maybe you're just part party on their depth chart and you're, you're down in AAA. Like you said, it takes a lot of luck, but then the hard work through the minors. Tell us, tell us about the minors. What is it? Is it really like Bull Durham with bus trips and, <laughs> and just riding it out? Or how difficult is it to make it through a minor league system for a major league baseball team? It can be very difficult. You know, I, I don't believe that. I, I believe that baseball and all sports at that high of a level, it's their businesses. You know, they're run by, by business professionals. They're run by people who have a bottom line and number to a, uh, in mind to a point. You know, they can't, most of them are wealthy in other endeavors, but just the way they're rigged, they want the baseball team to make money as well. Uh, with uh, Mr. Illich and, and Steinbrenner, some, some select few, spend way more money trying to win because they want to win, right? But as a whole, baseball is 
basically a market, like any other market in the United States based on capitalism, which would say whoever's going to give me the best advantage to win the game is who we're going to place. So there are people that get log jammed, and I'm just your first thing you addressed. I'm going with first. There are people that get log jammed, but over time, the cream rises, just like in anything. It might take you a little bit longer than if you were in a different organization, but I think that anybody, if if that's that's good enough, will make it. It's a time thing. Now going to the minor leagues, it is definitely a lot like Bull Durham. <laughs> so if you look at you made if you look at the minor through. leagues as a whole, my first year of minor league baseball, I started out in low A because I got drafted as a senior out of college. So I was 22 years old. Uh, usually rookie ball is more like that 18-year-old to, you know, the, the younger players who get drafted out of high school. But my first paycheck was $1,100 for the month before taxes. <laughs> so it's wow. not like uh, if you're in the minor leagues, you're making money. And my, my signing bonus was uh, 22000 I believe, which to me, I was like, oh, yeah, I have made it. <laughs> so then you get, in, you get into the minor leagues, right? Yeah. Uh, you get into the minor leagues, and the, it's a long season. It's longer than anything you've ever played, 120 games. It's kind of like college extended to a point because most of the guys you, you're playing with in the lower levels are similar in age because you don't have as the development. If you're not producing, you're gone because they don't have time and because there's a new set of players coming in the next year after that, right? Right. So, once you make it to double A, it's kind of similar there, but you get a few more veterans. And really, triple A is where, for me, it's less, it's, it's a little more glamorous per se, but it's also you're playing against grown men at that point. And when I say grown men, in our society, a grown man is about 25 years old, which is kind of sad, but that's the society we live in. You know, uh, with college and stuff like that, we're, we're basically told to prolong childhood, go have fun, go explore, do things, right? So you start playing with grown men who are 35 years old and got two kids at the house and you're just, you're like 24 still living that college dream or that, not the college dream, but the lifestyle of a college kid. It's, it's like, Oh, life check. I better grow up. You know, it's, it's uh, a lot of bus trips. We were in the Eastern league where I played double A 14 hour bus trips, uh, you know, guys eating pizza and burgers and, it's not like we're on a dietary restriction or anything. You can't afford good food. You know, you get a, you get a meal stipend of $8 a day or whatever it is. Where can you eat a couple meals a day for 8 bucks? Ramen. McDonald's. <laughs> you know, so yeah. <laughs> that's what we ate. But when you're young, your metabolism is high, things of that nature. But it's a, it was a great experience. A lot of the guys that I played with, I'm still in contact with now just because anytime you go through something like that, with guys, uh, you connect with them, right? You don't get to choose. It's basically like, imagine going through an entire year of your life that you don't get to choose your friends. Yeah. That's a, like literally you're just putting us in a, in a space that's a, far away from home, far away from your friends and family at home. And you don't get to choose who you hang out with for a year. I mean, the only other thing, and this is, I never like to compare sports to the military, but in this respect, I think it is a little bit similar to where you have a little bit of a brotherhood with the guys that you hang out with 24-7 that you don't get to choose who's, ne- who's around you necessarily. Andy, it's Emily T. Gale. And I'm curious, when you were first told you were going to be brought up by the Detroit Tigers, what was your feeling about coming to Detroit? What did you know about Detroit? And uh, so often players 
don't know a whole lot about Detroit when they come here, but it's amazing how many retire in Detroit. Yeah. So when I first got called up, I was in Toledo. I had never been to Comerica Park or the city of Detroit in my life. Uh, I'm a, I'm a small town country kid from, uh, Kansas. I lived eight miles away from a town of 1100 people on a dirt road. So <laughs> was far, uh, Wichita, Kansas is a town of about 400,000. That was a huge city to me before I got in, uh, started traveling in baseball. And I tell this, the beauty of baseball, the beauty of sports culture is it literally took a small town kid from Kansas put him in Detroit and we could relate to one another. I thought it, it, it still amazes me to this day how the, the values that they saw in me are the same values that most Detroiters live by work hard, blue collar, you know, grind it out, uh, work for what you get, things of those nature of that nature. And it really made them attract to me as a player. I think just by the way I played the game, the way I acted. And it's funny because you think about it, one of the biggest metro metropolitan areas in the United States, I grew up on a dirt road eight miles from a town of 1100, but we still have a lot in common, you know, and it, it, it's really cool to see that. So obviously I go to the Comerica Park. At that time, I'd been to about two big league stadiums in my life, uh, one in Kansas City and one in St. Louis. And I get out on the field and it's like, wow, this place is big. You know, they're cathedrals, these, the, 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 the plate where we play sports, the highest level. It's it's unreal every single time, and it never got old. Anytime they would announce, this is your 2012 Detroit Tigers, whatever year it was, the hair on the back of your neck kind of stands up, and it's amazing feeling. And no. and your feelings you know, about Detroit, did they grow? Did you start feeling more and more a part of the community? Because it's, it's wonderful the way the players do get so involved in the community. And how long did it take before you realized that Mid Midwestern value was really deep in Detroit as well? It's from the people. So anywhere you go, it's it's never about buildings. It's never about anything. It's about people. So when I came in in 2011, uh, Detroit was just coming off of the biggest economic crash that any of us have probably seen in our lifetime. You know, that's if you go back to uh, post World War or before World War II, when in the 20s, that was similar. But in Detroit, the town had taken a massive hit. And we're talking about people who had lost jobs, their retirements, uh, the infrastructure of the city was failing. They, they, the city was talking about bankruptcy. Uh, there was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of, of things that the Detroiters could have complained about. But when it came to going to Comerica Park and the game, they were just as enthusiastic as if nothing ever happened, which speaks a lot about a city. So when you get a group of people, and whether or not it was an outlet, but people who go through one of the worst economic times in history and still have the outlook and a positive attitude to say, we're not going to give up, we're not going to roll over, we're going to keep working, and we're going to find a way to make this work, it speaks volumes. So right there you say, okay, the character's here, the people are here, the people support you, the people have your back. Uh, there's really not anything else that needs to be said about what you would want out of a, a city that's supporting a, a team, a city that's supporting each other. So to be a part of that is a no-brainer that, okay, we want to get things done. What's the next step? Let's come up with solutions 
instead of gripe about problems. Well, it was fun to, you know, what was it, was it 2011 or the year that, uh, in, in the run for the, the, uh, season, winning the mm-hmm. season, the pennant. And yeah. the loyalty of Detroit fans, whatever sport it is, is pretty phenomenal, isn't it? Without a doubt. You don't see many cities support teams like Detroit. And I've always said Detroit is probably the most knowledgeable city about sports as a whole. You have all the big sports here. Everybody knows something about hockey, baseball, basketball, football. Not many cities can even come close to comparing to the knowledge people have about sports. It was very evident in 2011 and 12 when we played the A's in in, uh, the LDS, the divisional series. The athletics fans in Oakland basically – when you play there in the regular season, there's hardly anybody in the stands. It's a football field. When the playoffs come around, what happens is all the football fans come to the baseball game, all the Raiders fans. They want to get wild. They want to, you know, it's a, it's a TV spectacle. They want to be involved. The amount of noise was constant. It's the loudest place that I've ever played. The issue with it was they didn't understand the game of baseball. They were just being allowed to be loud. They were just yelling the entire game. It wasn't a home field advantage whatsoever because their players were feeling it just like we were. Where in Detroit, they Detroit uh, baseball fans understand they're watching the game. They cheer when something happens that's good for their team. They boo when the other team does stuff, right? So just that dynamic of understanding sports in, is well, it's way way more in Detroit than in other cities. When we played the Yankees in the playoffs, it's a spectacle. It's it's the celebrities want to come out and show face. There wasn't even people in the stands till the third inning. They left at the seventh. And that was in the LCS championship series. Pretty interesting. And was it 2013 you were a finalist for the Gold Glove Award? Yeah. Yep. In 2013, I was. A nice nice accolade right there. Yeah. You think about mm-hmm. the, yeah. gr- the great players that play outfield. Uh, you got to be pretty special in the outfield to be up for a Golden Glove. And it just... Part of my game is defense is something I always felt like I could control a little bit, uh, definitely way more than hitting. Because hitting, whether you like it or not, it it can be a bit streaky. Sometimes you get on a hot streak and, and you're hitting well. Sometimes you get a little cold and you got to figure out how to get out of that. But while that's all happening, there is no reason to not play good defense, in my opinion, or and work at it. Work at being a good outfielder. Uh, I tell young kids this all the time. All a coach is asking you to do, or all your teammates are asking you to do, is give me give me a little bit of concentration. Give me your concentration for three hours of your day. And in baseball, you know, it's a little different because it's a little bit slower moving game. A pitcher comes set, he throws the ball home, ball one. The catcher throws it back. So really all you have to do is, is little micro focus in very short bursts throughout the entire game. And you, you're going to be a pretty good player if you have some ability just based off focus. Now, now speaking about that, uh, I think baseball is a unique game and it's fun to watch the game within the game. 
And what I mean by that is football, if it's the Cowboys versus the Lions, it's pretty intense. There's a lot of trash talking. Uh, there might be some greetings pregame. Uh, hockey, the same way, a lot of jarring. There's fighting during it. Basketball, a lot of talk. But when baseball's going on and you're on first base and you, you see the opposing team's first baseman and Miguel Cabrera's great at it, Anthony Rizzo is, they get the other guy laughing. I've seen catchers and, and hitters talk. What is it about baseball that when you're competing against them, you're, you're still having conversations out there? And what is the funniest thing that you can remember having a conversation with a catcher or a baseman when you're on the base path? Yeah, so when you in baseball, there is much more turnover than any other sport. Hockey, you see guys play for the same team for 20 years. In modern-day baseball, guys are getting traded all the time. You don't know who your next teammates are going to be. The teams are different uh, every year. You know, there's a kind of a core group of guys that might stay there for five to ten years if you're lucky. But overall, there's turnover in baseball uh, at a higher rate than other sports. Uh, when it comes to kind of that that playful attitude, you play 162 games. That's a lot of games. That's a lot of days on the field. That's a lot of hours out there. And baseball's a unique game to where guys are very competitive, but you also have to have a de- decent sense of humor, and you have to be a little bit more laid back than you would in like a football game where you play once a week. And if you're a special teams player, you, you might get involved in seven plays that week. Where in baseball, you're constantly out on the field. You, you can't play with that kind of intensity uh, for that many games without either going mentally insane or something uh, physically happening to you, right? Uh, the funniest thing, probably, when Ozzie Gian was always a character. Uh, guy threw over a pitch. Uh, I, Adam Dunn was playing first base. He's a big, burly country boy, if you don't know him. Big left-handed hitter. He, he When I stand next to him, I'm about six foot tall. This guy's like six foot seven, like 270 pounds of pure man. That, that just shows you the diversity in baseball. Like, the littlest guy, the Jose Altuve, standing next to a guy like that, is it's a funny sight, but it all plays, you know, because there's different positions. But I get this this huge guy out there, and, and we're having a, a normal conversation. The guy picks over, and I was killing him that series. And Ozzie Gian walks out on the mound and and points over and like goes around his neck as a joke, right? Yeah. Like, hey, I'm going to kill you. You keep getting hits because you had to take the pitcher out of the game. And just <laughs> that wasn't. Uh, anything we talk about, but stuff like that happens in baseball. And if you don't have a, you got to have a good sense of humor. Uh, the good thing about most baseball players and, and athletes, I think as a whole is we don't take offense to things like people uh, do in, in other walks of life, you know, in office settings, it's a little more tight. It's a little more like, uh, you know, don't, don't make me mad. Where in baseball, it's a little more fun-loving, a little more uh, uh, you could say things that are on your mind. Nobody gets offended. It's fun. It's all fun, and, and, and uh, everybody loves each other to a point because we're all there playing baseball, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's still a kid's game at the end of the day is the way I look at it. That being said, um, there's unwritten rules in baseball, uh, fill in our listing audience of maybe an unwritten rule that isn't out there. Obviously, with what's going on with Atlanta and the Marlins right now about hitting hitting players and, and you got to retaliate. What's an unwritten rule in baseball that no one knows that is, is kind of one that 
is around the clubhouse that as a player, you know, but maybe the average fan doesn't know that there's an unwritten rule. Uh, usually don't talk to the starting pitcher. <laughs> so whoever's starting the starting pitcher that day gets to pick day, their own music. I, I know that pitchers. I always give pitchers crap about it. I'm like, you know, I'm out here playing every single day. And for whatever reason, it's like their wedding day is what I always called it. <laughs> oh, now it's your, oh, it's your wedding day again. So now it's all about you, and I can't talk to you, and you got to do this, and everybody has to cater to you as a joke, obviously, because I want them to focus and do a good job. But it's, it's funny to me to think, okay, uh, this guy is going to go out there uh, once a week and, and pitch 80 to 120 pitches, and it, he, it's, he needs so much attention. <laughs> and it's trolled out. And it's like, that's the difference between pitchers and position players, though, too. Well, they, they said Good that. Point. They said that, uh, you know, the late uh, Jose Lima, who is a very, very animated guy on the round, they, you know, uh, and I'm sure maybe with your teams, the starting pitcher normally gets to pick the uh, music that's played in the clubhouse before the game, you know, to get them ready. And uh, Lima time, they used to call it. Uh, but I guess Lima had some of the worst music, people <laughs> said, pregame. Uh, he had a couple stints here in Detroit, but uh, was a 20-game winner. But, uh, yeah, I, I have heard that about starting pitch. When when it's their day, it's their music. Not only that, Joe Torre said uh, uh, when he put, came out with a book and he had an interview, is that you know he, he everybody had a team mentality, but he would give pitchers a little bit more leeway because they they're just such a special breed. Yeah, and you have to be <laughs> to be able to go out and and I don't want a pitcher who's fully sane. You know what I mean? I want I want one that's a little bit out there, a little bit off, a little bit uh, uh, different, right? I want a pitcher who, when he gets hit around a little bit, he can shrug it off and he's okay. Because most people, when you fail, and pitchers are going to fail at, at uh, hitters fail at a higher rate, but we understand that because we're doing it every single day. I want a pitcher who can brush things off quickly, which is not a common ass, uh, not a common uh, thing for most people. If something bad happens. You, you, you think about it for a while. You dwell on it. Even as a hitter, you get out. Okay, now you're going to go think about it for a little bit. What can I do? Where a pitcher, they throw one pitch and the ball goes over the fence. They got to go back in and throw another pitch right away. You know, so it's like you, you need somebody who can who can flip the switch on and off quickly. And most of that is not a normal society norm to where when something bad happens to you and a whole bunch of fans go oh and boo, you might you don't have to keep performing. You know, what I mean, like if I strike out with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth or in the top of the eighth or whatever, uh, they oh, but I go back to the dugout and that at bat's over. Whereas a pitcher, you might have to then again repeat to the next uh, hitter fairly quickly. Who was Andy? Who who did you look up to as you were playing in the minor leagues or even in in high school and, and as you were going through your journey? Hoping to become a professional baseball player, and I want to. Who was your? And I want to piggyback a little bit off her question, really quick. Uh, you're from Kansas, so what was your favorite team? Also, in addition to that, uh, you know, the Royals. I would have to default to. I was a kid who was very active. Uh, I couldn't. I didn't sit down and just watch baseball games. I like to play the game. So when the baseball game's going on, Dad's watching the game. I'd watch it a little bit. And then I'd go outside or wherever, even in our basement, uh, against the, the concrete wall and throw a bouncy ball and catch it. And I was playing a game in my head constantly. You know, as I grew up 
uh, guys that I would, uh, I really would call idolize, whatever it is, would be guys like Manny Ramirez, Sammy Sosa, you know, the guys who were, were doing well early 2000s, late, late 90s was kind of my, my stride. Uh, George Brett was a player my dad admired, so obviously I admired him. And he would always say, "Oh, look, look, look at at how he does that, right?" And it's it's actually part of my program to even in the big leagues. I would act like Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, I would emulate players while I'm playing in the big leagues, and there's there's a strategy for that. And there's a reason I would do it. Awesome. Being uh, what? Yeah, I was gonna say, what was that? So, <laughs> what, what is the strategy? So. Yeah, so and we can we can dig into this. My whole program, Good for Game Right, is based around a lot of these uh, thoughts and ideas. It's basically practical ways to put into action thoughts. Thoughts, because the the game of baseball is, in my opinion, by far the most mental game on planet Earth, due to the fact that it's kind of a one on one relationship between you and the pitcher, and then there's different aspects to the game. So, with that said, uh, I have what you call it's a slump buster toolkit. It's something to get out of a slump. The first thing you hear coaches say is he's in his own head. How do we get him or her out of her own head? You know, whatever, whatever sport it is, if people are struggling, people naturally want to point straight at mechanics. Mechanics being, you know, the actual aspect of swinging a bat, kicking a soccer ball, swinging a golf club, whatever it is. The actual mechanics of my swing never changed that much. I could tweak them. I could do things to them, but my swing pretty much was what it was. I later on in my career, I understood my issues lied between my ears. So the quickest way you say, okay, your coach says, you know, you just need to get out of your own head. Cool. How do I do that? Like, how would, how do you go about that? That's a good, that's a great statement. You need to get out of your own head. It's very difficult. Right. right. I mean, uh, like how would you, how would you get out of your own head? I, I, I don't know. Brad, Brad's, Got his head so far. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, that was <laughs> no. no uh, uh, immediately when you say that, I think of Rick Ankle, uh, who was a pitcher. Uh, do you rem- obviously you remember Rick Ankle, yeah. who uh, yeah. for the Cardinals uh, could not. I mean, he, not only was he missing the strike zone, he was Ricky Vaughning it like in in Major League where he yeah. could not find yeah. the plate, but then came back as a testament as a hitter. But that's who immediately I think of is a guy that could throw strikes, who is a pitcher, who is who's a dominant pitcher, and then just lost it. I, I don't know because I've never reached that level of uh, a pro athlete like you have. I mean, uh, what's your advice on that? How, how do so, you get out of your head? Yeah, exactly. So the first the first step to getting out of your own head is don't be you. Be mm. somebody else. Turn your hat wow. backwards and batting practice and be Griffey. Become somebody else and be in their head. So guys, what I would always advise, guys you emulate, you look up to, it could be a Mike Trout, it could be whoever it is, and even guys in the big leagues, when I was in the big leagues, and even guys who are very successful in the big leagues, do this. They act like somebody else. One of the best months I ever had in the big leagues, I was Moises Lou in my head. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it got me. That's great. It got me out of my own head into Moises Lou's head. It takes pressure off of you also. So the the quickest way for me that I've discovered to get out of my own head is to not be Andy. And guys fight me on this, and I'm like, well, you know, how else do you get out of your own head? They never have a solution for it. So there's issues, and then there's solutions. So a lot of people just, they can point out an issue, but they, they never can respond with a solution that's that uh, you can actually use. So that's my whole premise is 
okay, here's the issue. Here's a solution. <laughs> it's pretty simple, but a lot of guys they, and, and people, they just, they overthink things so much that they can't come back to a simplistic thought, an achievable thought that makes sense, especially to a kid, somebody who's uh, maybe has some ability, but their dad's, uh, maybe never played baseball. And this all started, I was getting phone calls from dad and different people in the baseball community uh, asking me to go give them hitting lessons, this and that. And I think for me, uh, I'm a, my schedule is extremely busy. I don't have time to just go give hitting lessons constantly. That's not where I'm, where I make my money. It's not how I support my family. I like to help where I can, but what I figured out is the best help I could give is the mental side of the game because I think it's very overlooked and extreme. It's probably the most important aspect. So let me ask you this. You said that the best way to get out of your head is to be someone else. Uh, mm -hmm. Acting classes. Acting is a, a way that you become somebody else. Do you think uh, athletes that have a hard time getting out of their head, like doing something like that, like maybe take uh, an acting class, like might help? You know, it, it very well could. I think at, as a whole, I don't want kids to emulate stuff that guys do all the time. So when I say, when I say act like somebody else, that's on the baseball field strictly. You got to be careful when you get into acting because kids idolize athletes. At the end of the day, there are, there are very, there are athletes with extremely good character, mm -hmm. but there are also athletes that don't have great character. I say uh, that all so the time. that's part of, you know, parenting and things and, and helping the youth understand what a little bit of critical thinking is to be able to apply and say, okay, uh, what that guy did, I shouldn't do. Uh, I don't want to ever give the idea or the impression that you should just completely be somebody different. If you go to class, you know, you, you can't be Manny Ramirez sitting in, uh, in Spanish right. class in the, in the 11th grade, but on the baseball field, the way that they play and with access to technology and YouTube and things like this, that, that'd be the first resource I'd go to is YouTube find your player, watch clips of him, how he acts, the way he goes, and use his confidence and his, what they, you know, swagger is a common term now. Use their confidence and their swagger. Take that. That's what you're really trying to get. Okay. Because at the end of the day, what a, a lot of times what happens is, as you start struggling, your confidence wavers, right? Oh, and yeah. then how do we build that confidence back up quickly? How do we get you to get out of your own head because people want to go to a mechanical stance right away and say, well, you need to move your hands up here. You need to do this with your stance. You need to do X, Y, and Z. All that does is compound the problem because now not only are they thinking about their failure, they're also thinking that their swing's not good. And then they're thinking, I need to adjust something quickly to be able to make an impact. And then what happens is it manipulates their swing into a negative effect that they're not used to because regardless of however we like to break it down, uh, hitter, a hitter, the way you have hit a, when you're younger, the way your eye sees the baseball, the way your hands come through the zone, the way everything works, your body naturally makes adjustments to be able to make contact with the baseball. So you go change radically changing launch positions and angles and all this newfangled stuff that they have. You you dr drastically change that. It, it takes uh, away from your your body's natural response to hitting the baseball. 
Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> ab- absolutely. Uh, the, and the reason we are having you on, we, we, we did go back, uh, you know, into the, the past to hear about your baseball career, but we were fascinated about your, your mental approach and how you're working with uh, athletes and young athletes. Uh, baseball's unique in the fact that, think about it, a 300 hitter that might get into uh, uh, Cooperstown means you failed 70% of the time at at the plate. Explain to me what's so special about a baseball player that, I mean, in most sports or even in job performance, if you get, hey, you're good 30% of the time, (laughs) you're you're, You're you're out of a job. But in baseball, you have to ride an 0-16 slump and then just get, like, enough to get something going in your momentum. Explain that a little bit, how, how you mentally change that in life, too, because there's people in life that might have hit a down streak too in baseball players. I know people would say don't, you know, it, there's no crossover, but baseball players relatively there's less highlights than there are more highlights in a career. Definitely. So basically when you, when you break failure down, uh, you got to be careful the way you, you, you term it to young kids. A lot of people say without failure, there's no success. That's a great quote. But that doesn't mean just because you fail, there's going to be success. You have to do something in between there, right? So when, when you talk about uh, failing a lot in baseball, just because you get out does not mean it's a failure. That's, that's first and foremost. Just because something happens to you in life does not mean it's a failure. Uh, what is a failure is if you don't approach a situation uh, in a successful manner. So what, what, what that would look like is, okay, preparation practicing, working hard at it, and understanding concepts. And then I break it down basically into everybody has a particular skill set. I don't care what it is. Everybody on planet Earth, uh, barring, you know, uh, mental capacity, things of that nature that are completely out of anybody's control, and all these are completely out of our control, people have skill sets. You know, I am not, I'm not a great copyright, per se. I'm not a good writer. You know, I've tried. It's just not something that I'm naturally good at. You know, uh, language has been uh, is tougher for me, but I was very good at baseball. I could run fairly well. I could do different things. So using your skill set, all you're doing is, okay, what's, what, what are my best skills? What kind of task am I trying to accomplish with this good set of skills? To what kind of result am I going to get? The misnomer between those is focus and preparation, right? So whatever skill set you have is really, to, to an extent, is only going to be as good as how well you prepared and how much focus you use those skill sets with when you go into a task. So when you say failure in baseball, as you go up levels, here's the difference. You get, you, you, you get less at bats where there's failure because the way I look at it is really to be a 300 hitter in the major leagues, you only get a fail three out of 10 at bats because this is the reason there's filters out there. There's filters out there and there's a pitcher out there who's going to strike you out sometimes. So to, to hit that, so say you hit in the major leagues, five line drives, two get caught, one uh, two fall, you, you strike out a couple times, you have three terrible at-bats, that other at-bat, you get a little uh, a bleeder or something goes through. So really all you're looking for is about, you need 70% success when I say a quality at-bat, right? So I break it down for kids to a quality at-bat, not the result. In this society, it's getting harder because instant gratification is inevitable. The result is not the outcome. 
you don't worry about the result. You, getting a hit is not uh, a success necessarily, and getting out is not a failure. A quality at bat would be something like, okay, I had an approach. I had a mindset. I was prepared for that at bat. I, I took that at bat with a, a thought, a conscious thought to hit this ball back up the middle. Now, when I think that, that's the simplest approach in baseball. If I hit a ball that goes towards the middle, the shortstop uh, fills the ground ball, throws you out at first, was that a failure? No, I mean, I, not, not in my not. No. Because, no, because you, you, you did something that was, is repeatable that you can do again. The more times you repeat that pattern, the more successes you will have with it. Yeah, now, mean, that's great. failure would come. This is where I would say failure comes. You have no plan. You have no idea of what you're doing. You're just out there swinging the baseball bat and wishing for the best. Right. And you get some hits, but it's inevitable you're going to be extremely streaky. Like life. I say, it sounds like my it's dating life. life. <laughs> you know, having, having so a plan. The kid, the kid who prepares for the algebra exam, even with less skill in math than another kid who doesn't prepare for an algebra exam, maybe they get the same score. But who's going to win in life? The one that prepares. The one that prepared. Because that talent of that math quiz uh, that he has in math will only take him so far. The kid who is constantly prepared, the kid who is focused and using whatever skill set he does have or she has to accomplish the task at the highest level possible, when adversity comes, they stick to that process. They stick to that process over and over. I prepare for the test. I take the test. Whatever the outcome, maybe they fail. But they do it again. They prepare for that test. They, they think about their skill set. Okay, I'm not good at math, but I can prepare for a test. And they do that. The stuff that they're good at then, the natural skill sets that they have, maybe it's music, maybe it's whatever it is, sports, they really excel at that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, if you take that mindset at something you're already naturally gifted at, you can really succe- excel at a high level. Now, uh, I, I do want to ask you a couple more baseball questions, but I do want to um, talk about your mental approach. If someone's interested in uh, contacting you or learning more about it, uh, we're joined by Andy Dirks, by the way, a former MLB player, former Detroit Tiger, uh, very good player. His uh, career was uh, cut short by injury. How, how would they get a hold of you or how do you like them to get a hold of you? And uh, what what? is sort of the process that you go through when someone reaches out to you. Yeah. So you can go to get Basically there's an opt-in page. Uh, you get the free slump buster toolkit. You opt in. We get the email address. If you want social media is really the best way to do it. Uh, I have assistants and I have people that help me to be able to monitor. Okay. If you have a question, uh, hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Instagram, send a message. It'll get looked at. Because uh, we're about to beta launch the whole Get Your Game Right program. A beta launch is basically, I can't develop, I don't want to develop products people don't want to know about. It's not only a waste of my time, it's not, it's not fair to uh, somebody who, need, who wants the information. We're getting whoever wants to get in early. You get in, we're doing eight modules over eight weeks. We need your feedback. I need to know what people think about this stuff also. And, and we have the podcast. Uh, get your game right. It's a podcast. You can you can get it on pretty much any main podcast host there is. Uh, it's me interviewing not only uh, professional baseball players, but also coaches, dads, scouts, uh, all different aspects of the game to try to come up with a better understanding of not only how the whole process works, 
but also start understanding not only my opinions, but other people's also. Because I think it's very important for for kids and for parents and people who want knowledge to not just, oh, Andy's the end-all, be-all. I, I, I believe I'm very knowledgeable about this stuff because I worked at it for a long time. But there's also things that I want other people to be able to say also. All right, so that's getyourgameright.com. I'm definitely going to enroll my son after the podcast, uh, and I was going to do that after our interview anyways, Andy. I did have a couple more things I wanted to touch baseball before we let you get back to your family tonight. We do greatly appreciate this uh, long interview. It's it's been fun, Andy. Uh, First, I got to ask you about shifts. It's it's uh, Moneyball comes along and, and all of a sudden analytics is everything. Theo Epstein obviously uh, adapted uh, what was being done in Oakland and, and won with Boston and, and Chicago. And now now you see it's not uncommon for a third baseman to be in right field uh, due to shifts. Uh, there's been some talk about eliminating the shift or how much someone can shift. What's your thoughts on the shift in baseball? I think you should be able to put your players wherever you want to put them. I mean, it's if if you start if you this is where it gets baseball needs to be careful with the amount of rules they adjust. Uh, like with most things, uh, the game as a whole, for whatever reason, when a guy hits a ground ball to shortstop, he throws the ball across the plate. If the guy can run it a little bit, it's usually one or two steps. That part of the game is is inevitably probably one of the best creations that 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 could happen. Like how, how even guys throw harder, guys run faster, whatever it is, you can never outdo the game. The game, the way it's played, the dimensions of the bases, the dimensions of fields are a little different. But overall, the game as a whole, you know, protecting the catcher, I get that to a point. You know, we can't, these guys are getting paid so much money. You hate seeing a, an all star catcher like Buster Posey bust his knee up because somebody slides in. Right. Now, nobody, the, the funny thing about this, though, is one of the highlights you see at every single All-Star game is Pete Rose running over the catcher who ended his career in the All-Star game. Yeah. And we praise and we love it, right? Yeah. But when it comes to regulating things managers can do, what'll happen is it's like anything. It'll play out over time. He can you can put everybody on the right field line for all I care. Is it gonna work? Probably not. So there's a point where the shift's only gonna go so far and it'll just quit working completely. I don't think there's any reason you should regulate anything people were shifting ted williams in, in the 40s 40s and 50s ted williams didn't care you know it's not like it's a big deal to ted williams he's one of the best hitters ever you right. can only uh, alleviate so much by shifting and doing these crazy things that they're trying to do uh the baseball as a root of a game is played by people anytime there's people there's going to be it's inevitable regardless of what you try to do there's unpredictable measures including emotions, including the mental aspects. We're not robots out here. You can't, whatever statistics, and people love them, they can come up with, which I love statistics for a lot of things, but at the end of the day, you can't fully predict who's going to win the game. You can't fully predict who's going to get the hit. You can't fully predict who's going to drive in the most runs. You can make a, a, an assumed, uh, an educated guess at best. Now, so when you go shifting people, say, uh, a pole hitter's up, a left-handed pole hitter's up, and you start throwing everybody into right field, and he hits a lazy fly ball over to the left field, eventually what'll happen is he'll hit a skyrocket pop fly that should be an, the easiest out in the world, and it ends up being a double. Like, things of that are gonna, like that are going to happen. How frustrating is it for a pitcher when he does his job, and that doesn't count it as an out, 
as opposed to, okay, maybe they caught an extra line drive in right field. The, the pitcher, I guarantee, would rather when he makes his good pitch and is doing his job, the guy's out. I do have to ask you about steroids in baseball. Uh, it, it's come back again mm-hmm. because Barry Bonds' uh, number was retired by the San Francisco Giants. Whether or not, uh, and it appears Ken Griffey Jr., uh, this is a little bit before you became a pro, obviously, the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and Ken Griffey Jr. era. As far as we know, Ken Griffey Jr. was clean. There's been no indication that he ever was. He gets in. Uh, there's a lot of people, Roger Clemens included, that use performance-enhancing drugs. What's your thought on Cooperstown keeping them out? And the whole era of baseball, whether it was a juice ball, the home run ball, what, what is your thought as a player coming behind that? And, you know, was there any anybody that, I, and I don't want you to name names, but was there anybody ever in a clubhouse that you saw doing something wrong and, and you had to make a choice to do something right? No. Uh, personally, I never thought, uh, you know, I looked at the long-term effects of steroids, and I never had anybody ever push steroids on me. I never had any any indication of anybody taking steroids. There was a lot of speculation when I was playing because we were coming right off the steroid era where outfielders were hitting 50 home runs. This is what I say about the entire uh, steroid era, and we'll just sum it up this way. Steroids are part of the history of baseball. Like any other thing, I do not want to throw it under the rug. I think these guys should be in the Hall of Fame, and whatever, however they, they want to do it, these are the best players on the planet at the time, whether they're, they're taking steroids or not. There's other guys that were taking steroids that weren't that good. That's just God's honest truth. You know, we know that there was other players taking steroids that aren't going to be Hall of Famers. So whatever advantage that everybody says these guys had, was it really an advantage when the pitcher's up there throwing 96-mile-an-hour sinkers because he's on steroids too? No. Uh, With that said, the best part about when stuff like this happens is it's history. We need to learn from our history to move the game forward to move anything forward in life. There was, in the 60s, uh, there was so much discrimination and, and race wars and all this stuff going on that I never had to live through, thank God, but people did. But we learned from that history to move forward and progress. So the steroid era did happen, and it's okay. it, it happened. Guys were doing it. The problem is it's, it's similar with the, the American government, per se. Instead of nipping it in the butt, because what happened was We'll break it down even more. There was a strike. The strike happened. Baseball fans left. Steroids came in the game. Guys started hitting a bunch of home runs. Baseball fans came back. Baseball shunned their eye. They kind of said, okay, you know, we're not even going to address this. People knew steroids were in the game, but they didn't want to do anything about it because the fans were coming back. And when fans come back, the money comes back. And now, luckily, we've gotten past that in the fan state. You know? So it's an era that is, is is part of the game. It's something for us to learn from moving forward. Okay, we don't need performance-enhancing drugs to make this game enjoyable for people to watch. We don't need this, uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, players don't need to take them to exceed at high levels. So it's something to learn from and move forward from. I don't think you can erase it by saying these guys aren't in the Hall of Fame. I, I don't think that's fair to anybody. You know, it wasn't. It's not fair to a guy who, who was taking performance enhancing the drugs when nobody was testing them for it. Nobody was saying, you know, X, Y, and Z, you can't do that or we're going to ban you from the game. Nobody was saying there's a penalty for doing it. Why wouldn't they take them? 
Right, exactly. I mean, that, that's a great point. Uh, I do want to close with this, uh, Andy, and I do appreciate your time with us. This is Andy Dirks, a former MLB player. Also, getyourgameright.com. Uh, they're doing some mental coaching uh, applications, and this is for life. It's for uh, players, and uh, I'm going to get my son involved with it. Uh, so we want to thank you for your time. But you played with two Hands down, Hall of Famers and Justin Verlander and Miguel Cabrera. Uh, was there anybody that you played with that you you just stand on the stood on the field and you're like, oh my god, that's such and such there? Because the one thing being around sports is that I've learned and, and being around clubhouses is is that everybody thinks you get, you hang out with everybody, but there are some income gaps. Some people are making twenty four million, some are making just the minimum, uh, you know, million six. There is a there are some you know groups within a clubhouse. Was there anybody that you just ever said, I can't believe he's on my team and and you got to watch him every night, or somebody that you got to play against that you were just in awe of? Uh, so when Miguel Cabrera won the Triple Crown, and he was primed out. I mean, he was the most phenomenal hitter I've ever seen, bar none. Things that he could do, most nor, most people would never have a chance to do. If I tried to hit like Miguel Cabrera hit, I would fail miserably. He's got an ability that's way above and beyond what what I'm capable of. Uh, the the income gap to me it never made a difference. Like if you know me, I'll go up and talk to a billionaire like he's just a normal person because he is. You know, right. it doesn't matter to me uh, where you come from, anything. Uh, but with that said, Miguel Cabrera and Justin Verlander. I saw Justin Verlander load the bases with nobody out in Kansas City, and he struck out the next three hitters, hitting a 101 mile an hour fastball, 101, 100. 101, 101, just throwing fastballs. Struck out three in a row. Like, he just had that in his back pocket, right? Yeah. Most did, and he could command it. Uh, Miguel Cabrera would, and I talked to him, I talked to uh, Miggy about hitting, and I learned stuff from Miggy for sure. At the end of the day, though, he had an ability, his, his vision, his, the way he swung the bat, his strength, his balance, his timing, it was, it's like the perfect storm for a hitter, right? He's got it all. He would talk about seeing the, the ball out of the hand and spin, and <laughs> I said, I have no clue, because I, when I get up to hit, I just see the ball coming in towards me, <laughs> you know? Like, I, I, as much as I tried to slow the game down, he could, I think he could, it, the game didn't slow down because that's against the law of physics, but in his brain, his mental capacity, uh, the way that he saw the ball was probably a little bit more in slow motion than the way I saw it. Just the way his brain perceived things and his vision and all this different, the caliber of hitter he was and still is is extraordinary. I mean, it is. It is. Sometimes he'd hit a home run the opposite field on a, a fastball, uh, ninety-four mile an hour in off the plate, and hit it to right field for a home run and get the barrel to it somehow uh, without manipulating his body is just—it's beyond comprehension. Well, Andy, we we appreciate your time, and uh, we don't want you to be a stranger. Hopefully, uh, we keep communication up, and if something comes along, we'd love to have you back on the show again. And uh, I'm sure I'll be communicating with you uh, when my son gets involved. Once again, this is uh, Andy Dirks, uh, GetYourGameRight.com. Um, and uh, I'll let you sell it one more time, Andy. Uh, it's, it's a program to help, and uh, I'll let you sell it here. Yeah, so basically it's a program designed to take you out of what everybody else is doing and give you a little edge. That's the mental edge. The mental edge in all of sports and in life is what most people use to succeed at a very, very high level. 
uh, our ability will only take us so far. I'm not promising the big leagues to any kid by any stretch of the imagination. What I want to do is if a kid really likes baseball and he really wants to work hard at it, I want to see them succeed at the highest level, the highest capacity that their skill set will take him. If it's a, a kid playing JV that wants to get on the varsity team, if it's a, if it's a high school player that wants to maybe get a, a college scholarship and has that ability to do that, I want to see people succeed. And I think through this program, it's another tool to help them succeed. Like I said, it's another tool. It's not, it's not a get-quick-rich scheme. It's something that inevitably will help not only in baseball but in life. Well, thank you so much, Andy. Uh, great interview. One of one of the best we've had over the six years. Uh, and you know what? You're you're always part of the Detroit Tiger uh, legacy, and uh, it was great to have you. Well, I love Detroit. I love you guys. Have a great night. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, thank you, Andy, for so much time. Uh, that's Andy Dirks. Uh, once again, it's getyourgameright.com. Uh, check it out. And, and mentally, um, in boxing and MMA, it clearly mental is a huge part of the sport. Um, and so maybe we'll get some fighters out there to check it out too. I think we, I'm going to check it out just for my dating life. Well, I mean, there you go. You know, uh, I'm failing. I, something's got to change. As if that yeah, show. you got to find your game first before you can get it right. <laughs> as if this show wasn't hurt, enough Rochelle. with Andy Dirk. That really hurt. I had to do Cody's job. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you pulled out a little Marv there. <laughs> it was really interesting to hear his perspective on life and on baseball how it just kind of ties in with like the mental his psychology and everything is is really interesting it's 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 amazing actually now do you follow baseball normally no i don't but it's (laughs) it's crazy how much of the baseball part applies to regular life and i just wonder if he's always had this like mental approach to kind of like a lot of what he said seemed black and white like he's just really focused and he thinks about things real analytically seems like mm-hmm. yeah and uh the, the point i brought up is that you know 30 percent success is a hall of fame career and it takes a special individual to fail yeah. seven out of ten times and still be i mean i i knew kids when i was growing up that quit paper routes because people wouldn't subscribe wow. to them you know they got halfway yeah. to the block and they're like no one wants papers yeah. and they didn't even go try the but other well, there are some kids who just didn't even want to go collect on their paper routes. yeah that was yeah uh-huh. that was, i like doing the job i just did collect when i was a kid but <laughs> uh but yeah the 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 crazy thing is that baseball is probably the one sport in which you mentally you have to be like pretty special to right. to to get through that as if this show wasn't Good enough. We have Emily T. Gale coming up here in a second. We Jimmy's got what's, what's on, on tap. tap. I know. Yep. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, we have uh, Britton Hart. We're pushing her back to about the 840 mark. Uh, we'll be back with Emily T. Gale after this break. from uh, And Jimmy's doing what's on tap. Then we're going to a break. Stick around. All right. Do we have music? Is it there or no? no. Okay. Yeah, I, okay. All right. This is What's on Tap, sponsored by Falling Down Beer Company. Uh, in the boxing world, August 28th, uh, Wan Hang, uh, Maya Tholen, uh, Mayo Thin versus Pedro Tanduran. 12 rounds for Mayo Thin's WBC Strawway title. Uh, moving down to MMA, uh, August. Uh, sorry, hold on here. August, where'd it go? 
Sorry, I'm scrolling through my my thing because my printer crudded out on me. Uh, sorry, September 1st, uh, Invicta FC 31. We have uh, Janaroba versus Mor- Morandin. Uh, that is in Kansas City, Missouri. And that's it for... What's on task for us by falling down beer company? Only two things. Uh, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back. We're listening to the undercard hand combat radio. Take him to Detroit. No. Episode 284. It's the Motor City. So we're putting uh, the pedal down and having a great show. We just got uh, done with Andy Dirks. Uh, former uh, Major League Baseball player. We talked everything from the past of his uh, baseball career, uh, some some fun stories. Uh, it, as Rochelle pointed out, it does humor me that he did say that the minor leagues is like Bull Durham because Bull Durham is one of the greatest sports movies of all time. Even if you don't like baseball, Bull Durham is like one of the best movies of all time. It's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, I, it's legendary, yeah, my it's friend. Good. Legendary. Uh, but our next guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to try to do it justice anyways. I call her the ambassador of Detroit. Uh, she has done more for Detroit with – I I, I want to put this right. She's done m- a lot for Detroit on such a grassroots level that it's admirable that you, within a sentence – she summed up an attitude of Detroit, uh, and this this sentence has now been uh, placed on Whole Foods. It's been on shirts. If you've been to Easter Market, uh, they sell the shirts. But Say Nice Things About Detroit has been associated with Emily T. Gale for how many years now, Emily? Well, I started that in the mid-1970s, uh, and That's- it was really—it wasn't— I, I always say to everybody, it wasn't a slogan. It was a movement. It was a message. We had Emily's across the street. I had opened my first store in the late 60s in downtown Detroit, and Renaissance Center opened, and it sucked all the businesses from the financial district into the Rensen, and it was murder capital of the world. People you know, walked down the street with their head down, and saying nice things about Detroit was really a, a survival tactic as a small business person. How do we get people to start feeling better about being downtown? It wasn't like make something up about Detroit, but there were many of us who lived in the city, worked in the city, loved the city. It was like we all have nice stories every day about why we love being in the city of Detroit. And that's all we were trying to say to everybody. Is that for, And what we found out was that many, many people felt the same way we did, was that there were a lot of nice things to say about Detroit. You know, there were five times as many pros as there were cons in terms of things to say about Detroit. That was a cartoon that uh, James Worth did in the Detroit News one time. was, you know, Emily Gale is right. There are five times as many pros as there are cons. And I always say it's much like us as individuals. When people are talking about me, I like them to share the nice things about me. You know, not focus on my shortcomings, which we all have our shortcomings. And I'm working on my shortcomings. And the the city is a collective energy of the same thing. There's a lot of great things going on. There's a lot of challenges. A lot of times people would say, oh, you act like it's so perfect. And I say the same thing today. No, there's a lot of challenges. And there's so many people that are working on the challenges in the city. But there's also a lot of great things going on. And, you know, I wasn't the only person 
a lot of times people will say you were the one person doing the things out there. There were a lot of people that were working hard at it. I always say to everybody, we just we're pretty good at getting attention at what we did. And but I can't say enough to all the people that gave us support and got behind that. Not just people that came into the store and supported our Emily Detroit runs that started with 90 people, the first run. So when you saw that picture with thousands and thousands, you know, it was the first run ever put on in the streets of Detroit. There were, it was the support we got. The grassroots was exactly what it was. It still is a grassroots uh, movement that is in the hearts of people. And all the shirts and everything that everybody puts out there, that Detroit one that we had back in the 70s with the heart over the eye, and then eventually I made everything, sweatpants, everything you can think of, gave it away with a $20 purchase initially. And someone in the press said, well, she had to give it away. Who would ever buy a Detroit T-shirt? And so now what I say to everybody is that, you know, go buy the shirt. I love it when they buy us, say nice things about Detroit shirt. But buy the one that says how you care about Detroit. There's so many creative ways that people are making products that speak of their care and their their love of the city. So whatever it is that you wear, really, in the bottom line is they all say nice things about Detroit. And isn't it wonderful that there's so many people out there that feel that these days? Absolutely. Uh, tell us a little bit about your store and where was it originally located? What where, what was the address? Well, my first store was in the Penobscot building. It was a little 9 by 12 room. Which is pretty small, <laughs> you know. You could it's like probably, the size of a bedroom. Yeah. The, the studio is huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> smaller than a bedroom, actually. Yeah. And um, so that was uh, right by the stairwell on the first floor of the Penobscot Building, down the hall from the Caucus Club. And then my next door was called Emily's Two T O O, and that was in the first National Building. That was about five hundred square feet. Then a few years later, after having been in both buildings, and, you know, when you're in a building, a lot of times it's, oh, they can sell this, you can't sell that. You know, even though I was president of the Merchants Association in the first national building, I wanted the to be independent and separate from all the rules and regulations. So I took over the corner that was DuPont and Company because they had moved over to the Renaissance Center. All the buildings in that area were pretty empty at the time. And so it was a long shot, and it was pretty tough the first few years. It, it took a lot of a lot of moxie and a lot of naivete, I think, you know, mm-hmm. not giving up. And you just keep on doing it, pulling it along behind you. And when I first opened the store on the corner of Congress and Shelby, which is right next to the London Chop House, I was uh, very much like a crate and barrel. High-end items, I thought, well, if I have more expensive items, I won't have to sell as much. Well, Mm -hmm. eh, that didn't work. You know, eventually I found out as I started making some Detroit items that, wow, people really wanted this. They wanted to be in the spirit of of, uh, feeling good about Detroit, whether it was a bumper sticker that we made. And pretty soon, as I say, my whole store switched over. Everything in the place was something that had Detroit on it. And just the, the, the kind of, uh, support we got from every age was amazing. Um, we really, the, the Emily Detroit run was created with just about 90 or 100 runners. I wanted to have a run through the streets of Detroit. I went out and started promoting it. I was up at a radio station when I got back to the store. Uh, police chief Jim Bannon had a car waiting for me and took me up to the office and said, we just heard you promoting a run in the streets of Detroit that no, you can't have a run in the streets of Detroit. You need to go to Belle Isle. You know, there's no permit for something like that. And I started crying. I was like, well, we want to show people that it's safe because I had just become a runner myself. Oh, yeah. I had always aspired to be a professional golfer. And before I knew it, you know, that that was 
not something I was, I tried a couple times and okay, golf is behind me. And I started running and we would always run in the streets of Detroit, Pooh and I, and who was my partner. And we both felt that the streets were the greatest recreational asset Detroit had. We should be using the streets more. And that's how we came up with the run through the streets of Detroit. And once the police department said, okay, there must be some way we can do this. You know, they really got, as I pushed how important it was that people would be able to go through Greektown, take a run down by what is now Riverwalk. It wasn't Riverwalk then, but Soup Kitchen Saloon. There were actually quite a few establishments down there to take people down around that area, um, showcase those areas that we felt were a lot of fun and had enthusiasm. It was it was magic. After we had the first event with 90 to 100 runners, and then the next year, we you know, we worked real hard. It would build by a couple thousand each year. And what we were appealing to was not the runners. We were appealing to people who didn't come into Detroit. Maybe they were walkers. Maybe they were softball players. Whatever way we could get them to come down into the city, it wasn't just the run that people loved. It was the party afterwards. We danced right. in the street for hours afterwards. That's great. It's just a celebration of all things Detroit, the human spirit and, um, you know, happiness at the end of the day. Well, you know, in those days in the early 70s, because now there's so many runs downtown, you know, we inspired the turkey trot to get started and yeah. Detroit Free Press and people are so used to it now. But in those days, it was pretty unheard of. What I liked about it was we had judges, we had cab drivers, we had every demographic you can imagine. But when you put people in shorts, you don't know who they are. Yeah. You don't know what they do. And it was a, it was a, just a wonderful, uh, bringing together of every demographic. And when people danced in the street, you know, we'd go through like in our heyday, a couple hundred kegs of beer. And as the police would say, the worst thing that happened was a case of blisters. We were able to keep, like you saw the pictures, I'm starting to curate a lot of things. I have video from the seventies, which was three quarter inch video in those days. And, and I'm I'm just starting now to curate it. And when I put things up, people are like blown away by the crowds. There's, yeah, there's one photo that you just posted. It looks like the Boston Marathon. There's so, so many people. Many people. <laughs> it's either it at the like starting line or the like, finish line. It's got to well, be like the starting the Stanley, line. It was the like starting line. Cup parade. That's what yeah, it looks look like. That, that was in front of Cobo Hall. And it's funny because somebody uh, wrote on that after I posted that picture. Wow, is that David Bowie's name up there on the marquee? And I kind of <laughs> zoomed in and I thought, yeah, it is David Bowie. It also says start line, Emily's Detroit <laughs> line. <laughs> That's awesome. But what I love about that is it's right outside the door of what was then the Detroit Fire Department headquarters. Now it's the Detroit Foundation Hotel. Mm-hmm. They've done such a wonderful do- job at um, maintaining the look of the the Detroit Fire Department headquarters. When you walk in the apparatus room, which is the restaurant, they call themselves, they say, we're a restaurant with hotel rooms. That's nice. But that apparatus room is very communal. People can go in and plug in their computers and work on their work all afternoon and everything. And they've, they've kept the tile the same. I mean, so much in that hotel. We deliberately started our races outside the Detroit Fire Department headquarters because they were such a big part of our neighborhood in those days. Anybody that remembers, you know, you'd walk by and the guys would be polishing the fire engines and they'd be sitting out around the the big red doors that Detroit Foundation Hotel has maintained. Those are the the original doors from when it was the fire department. And And Cobo Hall built? 
Then? Yeah, Cobo yeah, Hall, Cobo yeah. Hall, and I think it was Cobo Hall. Now they call it Cobo Center. Yeah. Because I've been corrected by a couple of people. I was in the Detroit Foundation Hotel Sunday, and there was a guy standing there, and he went, Emily Gale? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm Joe Connor. I used to run Cobo Center when you had your store. I live in Florida now, but I'm up here for the weekend. And he was staying in Detroit Foundation Hotel. Well, it's just like DTE. No, no, no. It's Pine Knob. Yes, yeah. exactly. We have all <laughs> yeah, those yeah. That, those old memories. And what I love now is, you know, I walk down the street. I mean, I, it, it kept happened to me a couple times today where people go, I'm like, you know, God, I used to come into your store when I was a kid. Can I take a picture with you? I love it. But what I also love was what people like yourself. We met in what? Kinko's. Kinko's. Yeah. What, six years ago, maybe? Yeah. yeah about five, yeah. And I was doing, making signs, saying nice things about Detroit, and you were working on the undercard, and we made friends, and, and we've stayed friends, and been mutually supportive. And I love the energy of the people that are doing things in Detroit now, and I, I call it all our, our mutual mentoring. You I know, like being supportive, there's, I always felt the theory of abundance. You know, it's, there's room for everybody to do good if we can all help each other. It's not about somebody's a competitor. You know, it's why there's auto dealers all in a row someplace or mm-hmm. why you have shopping centers and you have stores all under one roof. You know, you get them out to the shopping center and what store they end up going into is the store they end up going to. What I love what's going on in Detroit now is there's so many small entrepreneurs and you know, that's a, it's a hard thing when you're when you're trying to do it on your own. Oh yeah. But the mutual support that I see amongst people and the support I get for what I'm trying to do is I weave myself into the Detroit community is so heartwarming. I just can't say enough. And you two are like perfect examples of that, of us meeting six, seven years ago, not seeing each other a lot, but wishing the best for each other Absolutely. and following one another and, and what you we're come doing. Home and you see a lot of that when you come back for the dear our Detroit homecoming. You come back for that every year, don't you? I come each year. This year I was here in June for five weeks. I'm here on this trip for six weeks. So everything that I'm doing, people say, why don't you just move back? And I always say, I'm working my way back. Mm -hmm. But I'm 24-7 paying attention to what's going on in Detroit from from Hawaii where I live. And I Hawaii wasn't someplace like, oh, let's go to Hawaii and live there. We had gone broke with our store. We Actually, we didn't like close it. McDonald's wanted our space. And, and we fought it in court a couple of years. And, you know, in those days it was called somebody else has more money. Now there's another yeah. word to it, but it, but it's life, right? Right. It happens. And, and that was a really hard time for us. We had lost our house. We had lost everything. We were literally picking cans out of the trash can on Belle Isle for our next meal. Dollar 35 omelet in the new coffee shop that had opened up in Greektown. And I always say probably the best thing that ever happened because when you've been broke a few times, you have a lot more compassion for other people when they have tough times. Absolutely. You know? When you mention um, the support aspect, did you receive any resistance when you first started way back then? Like of people saying, you know, that was kind of silly of you to be wanting people to say nice things about Detroit? Mia, that's a great question. I was called the perpetual Pollyanna. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Made fun of. And when they do TV shows, Mort Krim had just come to town and and Mort, they were all very nice, but they would have panel discussions and there'd be several people maybe talking about all the things that weren't happening in Detroit. And then there'd be me. I was like the chirpy little... (laughs) But wait a minute, you should come down to Detroit and see how many nice things there are going on. I mean, I lived in the city. We rode our bike to work every day. We, I loved being in the city. And, and it just, to me, it was like trying to share that enthusiasm of, you know, going over to Belle Isle for your runs or 
riding your bike. I mean, I can remember being on the riverfront when the Robin Hood flour mill was there. You know, oh, it wasn't wow. River so, yeah. Walk, right? right? I can remember Fourth of July being one of the few people sitting on the wall with the fishermen with my avocados and cheese and and bread. That's a that's a recipe I put into a book that was very popular. Meet, eat, and enjoy Detroit. And that was my recipe: was you go buy some cheese and avocados at the old butcher shop. You get on your bike, you ride down to the riverfront. You have a great time. You know, to me, that was like really an exciting day in Detroit, and it was exciting because it was just it was so city. And I, I was so envious of the kids that went to Cash Tech, you know, and their their whole spirit of being in the city. And so, yeah, being made fun of, absolutely. And I've actually had people, I pulled up to stoplights, you know, here in town, and people will go, they'll look over at me and they'll go, raise their arm and go, Emily, you started all this. <laughs> so I'm kind of getting the last laugh now. And now that Detroit is kind of trendy in a lot of ways, what do you think about how Detroit is currently? Well, I get that ask, that question asked a lot. And I think that, you know, when people say, are there two Detroits? Let's face it, there's a hundred Detroits. Yeah. There's so many different aspects, personalities yeah. to it and aspects. It's always in every community. You know, a lot of the things that go on in Detroit aren't unique to Detroit. They're, they're sociological issues that yep. happen in every community. Sure. You know, and I've always said, I said it to the school kids when they used to come in the store that, Detroit is a big enough city that it makes a difference in the world, and it's a small enough city that an individual can make a difference. I, I, I f also say, you know, all that glitters is not gold for everybody. And yeah. we have to remember that, you know, that everything doesn't, that's going on isn't, isn't a bonus to everybody that's passing through the city. Right. So we have to kind of remember that, that there's a lot of people struggling. There's a lot of small entrepreneurs, you know, open and close their door every day. It, it isn't just a blank canvas for everybody to come and, and do well. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important whether people are doing pop-ups at Eastern Market or, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but every time I walk through any place where there's pop-ups and you see how many people are doing it, I'm so encouraged that so many people have the courage to be small entrepreneurs and that the environment encourages that right now. Because I don't think you need the big businesses is like anchor, but the fabric of Detroit is the, is the individuals and the small businesses that make things happen. So a lot of the focus has been on downtown Detroit. It seems like, mm -hmm. and I know some people that want to start businesses, they feel like it's kind of unfair as far as the space is extremely limited in downtown, but, there's other areas that I feel like they should build up the same way that how they've built up the downtown area. Well, you know, that's something that we all hear every day, right? And yeah. like, who is they? Yeah. You know, I mean, you <laughs> yeah. can't blame people for picking where they have business. Even that when I had true. the stores and we were really working at it, I have an old newspaper article by Cindy Maher where she writes about us all doing a TV show and, and, and things, the Renaissance had just opened. And if Emily's closed, it would be like the Renaissance closing. You know, it was a beautiful accolade. You know, oh, we're all so encouraged by everything that's going on. And then at the end of her column, she says, you know, it's paragraph after paragraph of glowing things about downtown. At the end, she says, and then a few days later, I drove out to the neighborhoods. Okay. It wasn't such a pretty yeah, picture. It's it kind of negative. So that's same thing in every community. Yeah. You know, that there's always going to be sort of a central business district. And, but I do feel that there's a lot going on in the neighborhoods right now. You know, Mayor Duggan has this, uh, what is it? 20 minute 
uh, thing where you could be able to get anything you need within 20 minutes of a neighborhood. And they're doing like Fitzgerald neighborhood. There's so many uh, in Southwest Detroit neighborhoods that are being focused on. I think there's more going on in the neighborhoods than people give everybody credit for. Yeah, because it's just not it's, as highlighted. Exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 there's, it's not shiny. Exactly, Rochelle. I mean, it's like we, everybody thought we were the only ones doing something. Well, we weren't. We just got a lot of attention. You know, we knew how to get attention. We were doing a lot. I won't, I'm not d- taking away what we did because we worked hard at it. But there were also other people that were doing a lot of things. And I think there's more going on in the neighborhoods that not just by other businesses and, and the city, but individuals who had never given up who keep their block clubs, you know, work through their block clubs to keep them clean. I helped, um, and not helped, but I led the um, UAD first annual bike event they had for their homecoming last year with a gentleman named Tom Page, who used to be a Detroit police officer, and then he was in L.A. and came back. And the bike, we went through neighborhoods that I had no clue about how nice they've become. Oh, yeah. And that's why Tom created this bike event for UAD's homecoming was so that there were quite a few of us to ride to the neighborhoods and see, look what these people have kept up in their own neighborhoods. And yet we all drive through areas where we say, wow, you know, this needs some help. But I've been in some neighborhoods where you look around, you know, around the periphery, but there might be three or four blocks in there where those block clubs are really working hard and they've been there a long time. And And what do you see in that regard? I mean, the same thing. I think, you know, if people can expand their perspective when they think Detroit and not think something negative, but when they think downtown Detroit, they think, oh, that's beautiful. I want to go, you know, explore or whatever. Like you said, there's so much more to Detroit in these neighborhoods, although there may not be some great areas all over Detroit, there's more than just downtown Detroit that is really booming. I was at Sister Pie this morning, and there a group of bikers came up, and the lady that was giving the tour said, Oh, Emily Gale. And she said, I want all of you to meet Emily Gale. And it was a group of people from the Birmingham Unitarian Church. Wow. About 12 or 13 bikers, and she was taking them all around downtown. They went out to, uh, they were in West Village, and she was taking them to some areas, not just downtown. Wow. And they were going, we've loved, they started at Rivard Plaza. Um, people are interested in seeing all those little pockets of neighborhoods yeah. that are happening. And they're happening with people and families that have lived there for a long, several generations. Yeah, And I think those areas are even more special. I do, too. I mean, when I took the the bicycle ride out around UAD, I knew about the Fitzgerald neighborhood, but I did not know about University neighborhood, Bagley. Uh, there's five or six neighborhoods in that area that I had no clue about. Each one a little different. You right. know, it's like if you were to go through Palmer Park or Indian Sherwood Forest, Indian Village. They're all very different. Unique. But those neighborhoods are there. You don't hear about them a lot. East East Inkley, or East Village now, yeah. uh, Jefferson Chalmers, some of the things that are happening over in that area. Yes, we do need more, but I, I, I kind of, when I hear people say we, nothing's happening in the neighborhoods, I'm kind of like, yes, there is. There's people who have lived there for a long time that have really been Put working it together. hard. Yeah. Yeah. They're not waiting for people from the outside. Look, Luther Keith just had his Arise Detroit which was 200 neighborhoods all on the same day, what, August 4th, all celebrating what they do in their own neighborhoods wow. and, and exposing. I mean, who would 200 neighborhoods? That's a lot of different 
who would ever think there's that many groups amongst the neighborhoods out there? So I think it's um, it, as we get more attention and it's the media covers those things, and I think they try to do a pretty good job. So. I, I'm very happy for the people, uh, you know, this is before I even met Rochelle and the undercard was around, but uh, a house in Corktown, a couple blocks off Michigan Avenue, was a really easy investment. It wasn't a lot of money to put down, and it was a place where Detroiters or people that wanted to move Detroit could afford. There's, you know, stuff was climbing. And now that Ford's putting their headquarters in there, the people that stuck around, I'm really excited for them because not only did your property value skyrocket overnight, but um, they believed in Detroit. A lot of those Corktown people believed in Detroit before Corktown was I mean, Corktown, obviously an Irish community for a long time, but um, those were the houses that people typically moved into. Jimmy lived in Hamtramck. That's another n- neighborhood in, in uh, surrounded by Detroit in which um, a little bit more affordable living and, and stuff. And, and if Hamtramck was all of a sudden to have a Ford uh, plant put in there, I mean, you're, it's neat to see some of those people that believed in Detroit before – now going to reap some benefits and be a part of the well, rebuilding. Not, I mean, you don't even need a, a Ford plant. When I first moved in there, <clears throat> excuse me, when I first moved in there, uh, the the general rent for a flat or an apartment was around five to six hundred dollars. That was the general thing. Just out of curiosity, because I lived there for about six years. Just out of curiosity, and I you looked had up. A, you had a three bedroom, right? I had a three bedroom right. flat, right. upper flat. Yep. I mean, it was it was big. It was you know like a the yeah. size of a small ranch house, basically. But um, I looked at what people were trying to rent places for in Hamtramck, and it was closer to nine nine hundred to a thousand dollars. So I mean, just in six years. The value of living in Hamtramck went up to such a point because that it's trendy. It's trendy, and that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. It's now all the hipsters have moved in, and there's a lot more bars, and well, there's a lot, lot of more things going on. Can't afford to live in Midtown now, right? So because moved it went up. Because, well, that but that was the thing is when I lived, I lived in Midtown for a while, and it was six, seven hundred dollars for rent, and now it's like fifteen hundred dollars for rent. Mm-hmm. So everybody moved to Hamtramck. Well, now it's starting to move up again and pretty soon. And that's the positive thing about it, but it's also the negative thing about it. I agree. That's yeah, even challenge. parking. You look at, you know, all of us that have been around a lot, you knew where you could slip in and go get a parking space, right? Right, exactly. And now it's like totally yeah. different. So I it's that balance, you know, how do we balance out for everybody? Well, you have to reward the people. I can't stand parking in Detroit. <laughs> just cannot stand it. I take Uber how you, everywhere. How do you really feel? We, we, oh, just, we, know, we know some people, and we can't mention names, that are trying to reward people that were here beforehand. And it's difficult because when certain companies come in or certain um, economic factors go in, you, you don't want to chase out somebody that – was part of the community beforehand, and that's the da- the danger of when a in a Little Caesars arena opens mm-hmm. in the cast corridor and stuff. You want to reward the people that were here, and you don't want them to be run out because of high rent. Um, those are challenges that I always say are are for people that are smarter than me. Um, we we do got to wrap up here with Emily T. Gale, but uh, two things I want to happen, and uh, Rochelle says anything. I need for the undercard, Rochelle always says, you know what? Do it. So I am going to make a proclamation right now. Uh, Rochelle, I am giving you a task 
You have a year to complete it. You can use the ring girls or whatever you need. But I would like you to start a petition to get a street named after Emily Gale. And I think that we can do that at events and whatever it takes. Um, If ever somebody deserved uh, a street named after her in Detroit, I'd like to see that. Now, Emily, I'm going to give you a challenge, too. Okay. People loved your race so much. Let's bring it back. Well, let's you know, do it opposite the turkey trot in, in spring and have you come back and, and let's do the uh, Emily run. Well, let me address both of those. One is that I put on an event at Detroit Foundation Hotel and somebody gave an early announcement to me, which I'm still getting over that announcement, son, about Emily T. Galeway. Oh, well, someone's ahead of me. Wow. And they started to work on it. The other thing is, I've had a vision in my mind ever since we did go broke. I ended up going out to Hawaii to be race director of the Ironman because we had done the Ironman in the early days, and we had helped them a lot in the early days. Now it's so big. But in the early days, they didn't know a whole lot about what they were doing, and we did. And they would come to Detroit to see how we did things. And from that day years ago, 30 years ago, broke. Going out there, I always said, I'm going to go back to Detroit and shed a bright light on things. And fortunately, I didn't have to shed the bright light because it was in the hearts of people. But I always had a vision of, in fact, even the people at Detroit Foundation Hotel, every time they see that picture, they say, we got to reboot it. And I always say, believe me, I have had a plan for a long time. So I'd love uh, yeah. to see it. It's cooking. Yeah, I've got a plan. Bring, bring yeah, it back. Yeah, I, Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Well, Emily, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, we we got to get to our last guest here, Britton Hart. Uh, feel feel free to stick around, and uh, uh, because we love you, a part of the show. But um, I'm glad somebody's on top of that. Send us your in, their info because we'd love to help make that happen. I'll do that. If I can just toss one thing out, I'm curating a lot of videos and photos and everything from from the 1970s and 80s, and uh, we're selling shirts and say nice things about Detroit items at the GreatLakesport.com. And if people use the, they're all around town, but they use the uh, promo code Emily at GreatLakesport.com. They'll ship the, everything out for free, any orders over $25. But it's really fun to be looking at this old video and starting to put it up for people to see, like you saw the pictures. I love starting, it. Yeah. So I love, I love it. it. I love being part of your show. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Let's call Britton Hart really quick. Uh, she had a tough battle against uh, Beck Rawling. And uh, the Bare Knuckle 2 fight, which happened in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. We're going to talk to her briefly. Hello. Hey, Britton. It is uh, Brad from the Undercard. You're live on the air. How are you? I'm doing great, Brad. How are you? Good. We are joined by Britton Hart, who is a pro boxer, not only a pro boxer, but also a bare knuckle uh, fighter. We were supposed to have her on last week, but we had technical difficulties. Uh, she had a fight against uh, Beck Rawlings uh, down in uh, Louisiana. How are you? I am doing. I'm doing good. Um, I definitely wish the circumstances were a little bit different, but hey, you know what? It, I was honored, and uh, I felt like I was part of a historical event, so I'm doing pretty good. Well, we always stick behind fighters, whether they win or lose, because it takes a lot of heart to get in there. And not only that, uh, you know, we, we, we'd have you on anyways, because uh, very fascinated with the sport. But you, you held your own in there, and it was a very close decision. Uh, tell us a little bit about bare knuckle boxing. I, I've not watched a lot of it, but one thing I do gather from it is that you have to be very sharp with your hand and eye coordination. It, it's a lot easier to hit somebody with a glove 
then a, a, then a bare knuckle uh, because you're you got such a small uh, uh, like arrow. Uh, tell us the differences between the two. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's crazy kind of looking. Um, if you would have talked to me before the fight, I think my answer would have been completely different uh, now that I've actually experienced and gone through it. So it's definitely really, you know, neat to be able to talk about it as, um, you know, I've witnessed it and been there firsthand. Um, I remember, you know, fighting it. To me, it felt just like a boxing match. Like, I treated it just like a boxing match, um, even though I did get a few clenches in. But, um, you know, you, you do have to be more precise, and I think that's where you would see in, in my fight particularly. You know, you, you kind of just have to set up the shots a little bit more. You can't just go in. As you saw, there was one fight earlier on in the, in the card, and the guy just goes in swinging and hits as hard as he can. He ends up, you know, hurting and damaging both of his hands. So you have to, you know, keep that aware. And that, that's something that, you you know, you have to be more calculated. You just don't go in swinging. You have to go in. And it's almost like playing chess. You know, you, you want to set up your, your shots and your moves to where, you know, you're not going to have any damage to your hands. Because, you know, once your hand, I mean, as you can see, you break your hand. Like, sometimes that will just take it out of you where you um, – just fall to the ground but um so just more cautious on the shots that you take um landing them you know it's a little bit more it was a little bit different but i thought to be honest with you i thought it would be a lot a lot more different than um boxing but to me i just remember going back and thinking this is just a boxing match for me like i treated i treated it just like i would any boxing match now, some casual observations. Uh, one, it's not a ring. It's actually kind of an oval or a complete circle with uh, turnbuckles kind of around it. Uh, two, you start off rounds in an inner circle that's marked off by like a line so that you don't come out from a corner and you kind of start trading blows from there. Uh, you you mentioned obviously your hands can get easily hurt because you're just using a simple wrap. How do you train for a bare knuckle fight? Because uh, it, it's tough. You you can't go through a complete training camp doing bare knuckles because you're going to get a bro- uh, boxing break. How, what what's different with the training, specifically hand wise, uh, how you work? Yeah, um, actually, I was pretty, you know, I don't know if we want to call this a fortunate or unfortunate thing, but in my life, I've definitely had my fair share of hitting hard objects. So, I've, uh, you know, I already have um, pretty strong hands and, you know, calcium deposits where I've hit hard objects just from past, you know, just silly, stupid things. But um, basically, when I, I realized that bare knuckle fighting was going to be a sport, I would just kind of start hitting the heavy bag with no gloves. So that was like a first step. And then you just kind of increase the, um, on the surfaces, how hard you're hitting and, um, and then the surfaces get harder. So I use some other things like, um, you know, sand and concrete kind of things like that to kind of strengthen them up too. Um, I will say this, I was, even though I probably wasn't very vocal about it, I was worried about my hands because everybody stressed that so much on your hands being able to break. And if you hit somebody wrong, um, it being an injury, I've already broken my hand before. So I was kind of in the back of my head, kind of worried about it. But honestly, walking out of the fight, like right now, my hands have no damage to them at all. They were a little bit red and there's some bruising, but I can still go to a punchy bag right now and punch it as hard as I wanted to and be fine. 
Uh, the the other thing I noticed is the the face swelling, and uh, I saw you joking about it on social media. But um, because you're hitting somebody with a clean fist and a wrap, it it's a little bit more swelling than just a boxing glove over a shorter amount of rounds. Uh, that's something you can't prepare for either. Nor can then, a cut man. I, I saw Stitch was there. Uh, nor can a cut man prepare for that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I remember talking. That's why I said my opinion has kind of changed. My hands are completely fine, but my face is definitely swollen and more so than it's ever. You know, I've been in some pretty rough boxing matches, and I have, you know, I've never had this reaction. So I definitely, my face is extremely swollen and definitely black and blue, which. You know, I guess could be, you know, you know, it's understandable that, you know, I just came out of fair enough, but you can't prepare. I mean, you can't get something your face up before the fight, but it is what it is. You know, I, you know, thankful I didn't have a, a fractured nose, so I didn't break my nose, but it's been broken before. So, you know, it's a little bit more common to get that in, you know, any combat sport. So, but other than that, that's the only day out of everything, the only damage I heard was the hairline fracture of my nose. Well, uh, we want to thank you for joining us for a few minutes on the undercard. Uh, sorry it couldn't have happened last week, and we know the results, but we'll have you on. Uh, something tells me you're going to, since you were the main event and you, you, you did pretty good against uh, somebody that, you know, I read, I read some reports that that girl was supposed to ro- roll you just because of experience. You, you held your own. You look good in there. Uh, something tells me we're going to see you in bare knuckle boxing a, a few more times, and I'd love to see you in the box ring too. The one thing I did like uh, fight week, uh, Beck uh, clearly was playing the evil villain, but you kept it positive and you were giving the love wins message, which I always love. The people that give the love wins message. Uh, so I, I think you, regardless of records, uh, got a good fan base and are positive for the sport. Perfect. Well, that's definitely what I wanted to do. And that kind of showed, you know, I was really down on, you know, the fact that, I mean, I really, I really, really wanted to win, like more than anything. So I, I was kind of bummed because I feel like I, I didn't keep up my part of the bargain as far as telling everybody that I would win and I'd do it for them and that I would show them that. But, you know, I think that in the long run, when I look at it, you know, winning comes in so many other forms and shapes. And, you know, even though I did bring the belt, I, I mean, the response that I've gotten from people and just them seeing me go out there. and Yeah, exactly. Like, I remember going in before the fight, right before I was about to fight, some guy walked by me and he said, yeah, you better go do a good job because I just stood up for you. He says, they're all talking about how you were going to get knocked out the first round. I would say, no way. You know, I see the look of that girl's eyes. There's no way she's going to get knocked about first round. And I think a lot of people were kind of thinking that the experience was mismatched and that, you know, Beck was just going to destroy me. And, I mean, I was just so happy to leave proof that, you know, that was no way going to happen. And, you know, it was a split decision. But I have a lot of people that really made me feel like a winner in this and that, you know, I could still be me and show that, you know, a different side of female boxing. You don't have to be the the tough, you know, mean, all way, evil kind of villain going into boxing that you can be, you know, someone who has passion, you know, and and really be a good person and get it the right way. So, you know, definitely um, it means a lot to me that you say that and that, you know, the recognition on it. I definitely will be back around. This is not the end of me. I can tell you that for sure. Whether it's boxing or bare knuckle, I mean, fighting is my home. I think bare knuckle really had a great response. So I'm just excited about the future altogether. Awesome. Uh, really quickly, for people that want to follow your career, where can they find you on social media? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, it's written hard on Facebook. Um, you know, I'll definitely get an athlete page. And so I think a lot of people have reached out and really would like that. So I'll definitely have that up. And then my Instagram is written heart underscore. So it's crazy to find. Um, I'm definitely more active on Facebook than anything, but you know, I'm definitely going to find a way to reach out because you know, my biggest thing in me fighting, you know, a lot of people say, you know, fight for yourself, fight for yourself. Well, I've done that my whole life, you know, and that's what I've been doing. You know, I want to show that I can fight, you know, and inspire and, you know, my hopes and goals were to change the world and change people's perceptions on things that they think that they know about and kind of open open doors that way. So I would love for people to kind of see that and, uh, you know, be able to inspire people. So I'll definitely find me those ways. Well, I tell you what, too, uh, you had one of the coolest uh, fight team uh, shirts I've ever seen, too. If you send one send one my way, I'll wear it at an event or something like that. I, I don't even know if you have my size. It would be like a double XL. But you, your fight <laughs> your fight shirt was pretty awesome. Uh, you know, been doing this for a long time and a cute little logo. Everything about it was really uh, it was a good fight shirt. And uh, we appreciate you joining us. Awesome. Yeah. Did you see the back of the fight shirt, what it said? Uh, I didn't see the back of it. I saw the front of it uh, from the camera angles. But what did the back say? It says a thousand dreams. So I love it. It's kind of reaching out. It's the message reaching out. You know, it doesn't matter if you have one dream or a thousand dreams. You just try. You know, try to reach them the best you can. Well, I love your positivity, and I, I love that you got it, first off, out of the fight un, uh, unscathed. Uh, everything will heal. And I, I can't wait for you to be back on uh, you know, a card, whether it be boxing or uh, bare knuckles. So thank you so much for joining us, Britton. Perfect. Thank you, and have a great rest of your night, okay? All right. That is Britton Hart wrapping up one hell of a show, Jimmy. Uh, episode yeah. 284, uh, Emily T. Gale, who I call the ambassador of Detroit. Thank you so much for joining oh, us. I love being here. Mia, nice to meet you. Rochelle, nice good to, to see you. And Jimmy, nice to yeah. see you again, too. And I remember then, my name this time. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and Andy Dirks, who uh, we took a long time with Andy, but he had a lot to say. I, I love when, uh, you know, Emily did the same thing. When you, you ask a question and they, they really take their time with it and think about it and give educated responses, I, I mean... We can only do as well as we can sometimes with questions. And Andy and Emily did a great job, even Britain there at the end. And uh, Mia, you had some uh, actually. Mia might have had one of the best questions I think there. So uh, that was to really Emily. right. So I greatly appreciate that. We're wrapping up uh, two eighty four. We will be back next week, 285. Uh, I actually turned 41 before then, so we'll probably celebrate that oh, in right. uh, traditional fashion. And uh, we'll be here. Uh, out there. <laughs> and I'll talk to you everybody right. soon. Take care. You're listening to The Undercard, Hand Combat Radio.